Hi, welcome to 21 Wire Live. I'm your host, Patrick Hennington. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon or this evening. Uh, if you're in the UK, we've got a very special uh, broadcast today. We've got a very special guest uh, waiting in the wings, and we'll introduce him uh, in a moment. But uh, before we do, I just wanted to say that we are streaming out live on YouTube, uh, also on Periscope, on Twitter, and on Facebook Live as well at the 21st Century Wire uh, fan page on Facebook. So you can catch us on those live streams. And of course, up at 21stCenturyWire.com at the top of the features section, you'll see a live stream post there where you can also watch uh, this program, this broadcast. Now, our next guest, very special guest, and this is falling on a time when we're looking back at the Arab Spring. Ten years, uh, we're approaching the 10-year anniversary of the, the Arab Spring as a geopolitical uh, phenomenon. Our next guest is the former British ambassador to Syria and also in from Bahrain as well, served in that post from 1999 to 2002. Uh, and his name is Peter Ford, and he is uh, joining us on the live link right now. So we'd like to welcome him to 21 Wire Live. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hello, uh, Patrick. I'm uh, great. I'm very pleased to be with you today. No, it's great to have you uh, as well, Peter. And uh, before we start, um, I just wanted to allow people to familiar, familiarize themselves with you uh, in your background, uh, how you got into uh, your line of work for your career, the Foreign Service, uh, what sort of drew you into that. Uh, and also after that, we're going to talk about the 10-year anniversary of the Arab Spring and then look at how uh, the, uh, the foreign policy landscape looks uh, in the Middle East right now after 10 years of intervention uh, by Western powers, uh, by NATO member states, by the Gulf states, and then look at what, what we could expect going forward in 2021. But before we do that, just uh, give us a little background, Peter, uh, about yourself and uh, how you got into uh, the Foreign Service, this line of work? Um, well, I'm a, a fully uh, paid-up member of the uh, British Foreign Office Camel Corps, as it used to be called. I trained as a, an Arabist uh, soon after joining the, uh, the Foreign Office. Um, I was a, a linguist, but I had to learn Arabic uh, from uh, scratch and was sent to Beirut, uh, to a special school of Arabic uh, there, known by the locals as the spy school, not without some reason. Um, and, and then I uh, pursued a 35-year career in the Foreign Office, uh, about half of it uh, in uh, or dealing with the, uh, the Middle East. And, um, and then I jumped ship to join the, the UN for a further eight years uh, based uh, uh, again, in, in, in the Middle East, doing refugee work. Now, uh, as, as a lot of people might know, uh, this is the 10-year the anniversary of the Arab Spring. Uh, it's, it's hard to sort of put that into a box uh, neatly uh, now, 10 years later. But at the time, that was a major phenomenon. It was, a, it was a, an event. It was a geopolitical event. A lot of people had a lot of hopes and dreams. That was the mainstream narrative that this would somehow... Uh, you know, fix the region, which had been, you know, hamstrung by dictators for so many years and so forth. That was the kind of the, the general mainstream line. Um, you know, yourself looking back at it, um, you know, what are your thoughts uh, now after 10, 10 years on from that, say, pivotal moment in, uh, in, in geopolitical history? Uh, well, the effects are still working their way through um, after... 10 years, um, it reminds me of the very wise uh, former uh, Chinese uh, uh, foreign minister who, who was asked uh, for his assessment of the French Revolution, and he said it's too early to say. Um, nevertheless, uh, we, we can make some observations about the Arab Spring, and I'm afraid they're nearly all negative um, as, as we look back over the achievement uh, of ten, the last 10 years, um, we have to conclude that the gains for Arab peoples have been virtually nil, uh, while the net beneficiaries have been mainly Western powers. And 
on on in terms of you know your formerly you served uh, as the UK ambassador to Syria from 2003 to 2006, and before that you were with one of the the Gulf states um, uh, in Bahrain. You're stationed there, and uh, I'd assume. Correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but 2003 around that time might have been a sea change in British foreign policy. Uh, you know, how did how did the Foreign Service change? In other words, you, you as a diplomat, um, you, you might have come into it uh, at a certain with a certain remit. And has that changed since when you got into the service? And and was 2003 one of those those watershed moments? Uh, yes, um, the, the Iraq War um, around 2003 um, was one of those uh, watershed uh, moments. Um, it was, uh, but we really have to go, go back uh, further uh, to perhaps the, the days of the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, early uh, 90s. Um, that is when the West developed uh, hubris with regards to the Middle East and, and the, rest, the rest of the world. You, you recall um, those uh, pundits who were claiming that we'd reached uh, the end of history, that the, the, the Western model was triumphant. And um, when the Arab Spring came along, um, it seemed to many that this was the, the prophecy uh, coming true with regards to uh, the Arab uh, world, just as it had apparently come true with regard to Eastern uh, Europe. Um, it wasn't called the Arab Spring uh, for nothing, because we'd earlier seen uh, European springs. And so this apparently inevitable uh, march of Western-style democracy uh, across the world um, occurred on on my watch. Um, in uh, it, it happened, uh, or, be, or be began to to happen in countries where, where I had served, and, and I saw seeds being sown. Uh, although the Arab Spring didn't begin until four years after I'd left uh, Syria. Now, nevertheless, um, the, the seeds were were sown um, in in Bahrain. In, in, in terms of a, a, a growing demand for uh, a say in government on the part of the ordinary people of Bahrain, and, and because Bahrain uh, has for many, many years been run essentially as a, uh, an autocratic uh, kingdom uh, ruled by one family, um, which happens to be of the Sunni persuasion, while the majority of Bahrainis uh, happen to be uh, Shia. And in, in Syria, of course, I also witnessed, in, indeed, personally encouraged some green shoots of democracy um, with a certain amount of uh, support from uh, the, the, the local uh, government. Um, it's worth remembering that uh, in, back in uh, 2003, Bashar al-Assad, the president, was having tea with Her Majesty the Queen in, in Buckingham Palace uh, and was seen as someone who could usher in uh, a certain amount of uh, liberalism and democracy in, in Syria. Um, but things uh, panned out very differently. If we, if we uh, pan forward to 2011 when it all kicked off. It, it, it started well enough in, in, in Tunisia, uh, very tragically, of course, uh, triggered by the very public uh, self-immolation uh, of a, a street trader who was being harassed by the Tunisian police. And that set fire to a lot of dry tinder that was lying around in uh, initially in, in Tunisia, and then as if by a domino uh, effect across virtually the whole of North Africa. And uh, before long, the government, the secular government of Tunisia had, had fallen. Uh, and then uh, with some help from uh, uh, Western bombers, uh, Khadafi, the dictator Khadafi was re removed from Libya. Um, Mubarak, uh, again, given a nudge by the Western powers, 
was dislodged uh, from, from, from power, and the Arab Spring seemed set to sweep uh, eastwards um, across uh, through Syria and into the Gulf. And indeed, we, we saw in Bahrain huge demonstrations. Um, but this is where it all ran into the quicksand. And uh, I will expand on that in a moment. But Patrick, maybe you have a question here. Sure, sure. So, you know, one thing that struck me, um, you know, after this, obviously, we're reporting on things that are breaking uh, from 2010-11. But afterwards, uh, in, 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 when I was in, in the academic setting uh, in, in Britain, and then looking at how The Guardian and some of these traditionally left-wing uh, newspapers, um, these sort of intellectual cauldrons, if you will, uh, how they're looking at civil society. And it, it seemed like there was this real push to promote the emergence of civil society in places like uh, Syria, for instance, but not in places like Bahrain, uh, where, you know, someone like Nabil Rajab, as you know, uh, imprisoned many times. There's plenty of opportunities for the for the media to make that a big issue, and the, they chose to ignore it, but wanted to really uh, pump a lot of money into NGOs and this kind of... Um, government in exile in Syria. In Libya, too, they had the same type of you know, national transition council and uh, Western-appointed uh, you know, cabinets in exile. Uh, but it, it, there's a clear double standard there with media, academia, and there was this coordination, really, that uh, we want reform in some places, but we don't actually want reform in other places. What are your, ex what's your experience uh, and your thoughts on that? Um, yes, uh, <clears throat> I think we, we witnessed a, 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 a massive, uh, though largely unnoticed, drift to, to the right uh, in, in our entire uh, body politic, uh, in, certainly in, in the UK and probably more widely, so that um, papers like The Guardian that would previously be anti-war uh, and uh, anti-imperialist, uh, um, became uh, almost overnight, maybe the Iraq war was one of the turning points here, became almost uh, overnight um, virtually organs of the um, of state security um, and uh, were perfectly happy to see the use of military force um, to change uh, regimes, uh, all in the, the name of uh, uh, alleged uh, humanitarian uh, values and humanitarianism, the, the banner of the, the left, uh, was turned into a pretext to apply the policies and the, the attitudes and the mindset of, of the right. Um, and that is what we saw in, in, with uh, Syria in, in particular. Uh, but, but also um, Libya, where um, most of the so-called liberal media were quite happy to see Gaddafi taken down, even if it, it meant the use of uh, Western jets to, to do so. And they, they were more than happy uh, to see Western military intervention in, in Syria. Um, in, in the case of Bahrain, they were largely indifferent, in although the amount of oppression in Bahrain, I can tell you, uh, was much greater than it ever was in, uh, in Syria. So we, we saw and, and continue to see uh, a massive um, shift in the ideological tectonic plates so that yesterday's um, anti-war, anti-imperial uh, liberals uh, are, are still today self-described liberals, but the whole definition has changed. Uh, they, they are now militantly in favor of, of uh, Western uh, aggression, where it suits a, a national imperial agenda, but on a humanitarian or human rights pretext. And uh, you know another another big you, you mentioned Libya obviously the the NATO intervention uh, that upended the country effectively split it into three parts turned it into a failed state uh, making it the the train wreck that it still is uh, even to this day 
uh, and we talk about Syria, of course. But one of the big set pieces of the Arab Spring was Egypt uh, at the time in terms of how the West was obviously the most populated country uh, in the Middle East, one, or if not, yeah, one of the most, if not the most populated. Uh, but there was such great hope that uh, with the ousting of Mubarak and then the, the new Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi-led government comes in and that this would somehow uh, set off a chain reaction around the region. And what happened in Egypt was something quite the opposite, in fact. And really, you could say, has it ended up in exactly the same place where it might have been before uh, all this began? Uh, very much the, the same uh, place as before, only a bit worse. <laughs> the, the Sisi uh, regime is even more uh, repressive than the Mubarak uh, re regime uh, was, and, and uh, the, uh, the Western governments have barely uh, murmured uh, against uh, uh, Sisi. Um, they were uh, so happy to see uh, the, the Islamist um, government uh, uh, overthrown, um, and they're, they're very happy, it seems, to see Egypt virtually disappear uh, as a major player in, in the region and the, the world. It, it, it seems almost centuries ago that uh, Egypt and uh, with a, 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 a leader like uh, Nasser or even Sadat or, and Saudi Arabia with a leader like uh, King Faisal, they made the weather in, in, in the Middle East where are their equivalents uh, now? They are pygmies. And this uh, very much suits, of course, the Western agenda. They don't want to have uppity uh, leaders um, in, in this uh, pivotal uh, region. They would much rather have uh, leaders who are beholden uh, to the West for their very survival. And, you know, when when there's a sort of a, a green shoots of democracy, as you said before, uh, in a place like Egypt, the Western media uh, then gets a hold of this. It becomes a story. It captures the imagination of the uh, the liberal intelligentsia uh, in the West, in North America, around the world, really. And uh, th that becomes the narrative. It's about uh, freedom and democracy flourishing uh, in a place where there wasn't. And then in, in a country like Egypt, they really had structural structural difficulties economically, huge amounts of foreign debt, um, problems collecting taxes, you know, just perennial problems that a lot of uh, failed states with, you know, a failed central government have or that a failed economy. And none of that ever could have been improved. In fact, I think they took on more debt with the Morsi government in that one year uh, they were in power from the IMF. But, but still the commentators, the pundits in the West, they ignore all the economic structural realities and the focus seems to be exclusively on you know this this responsibility to protect or the promotion of democracy this kind of abstract postmodern abstract ideal that ignores the fundamentals on the ground and i don't know if you've noticed the same thing but i i see this as a reoccurring problem that hasn't actually been addressed yet in terms of how the west is is commentating or talking about these types of situations in places like the Middle East? Uh, yeah, there's a, a willful ignorance of the complexity of, of these countries, the, the economic complexity, the social uh, complexity. Um, and uh, when I say social complexity, what I mean essentially is the religious uh, factor uh, which is basically why the, the Arab Spring um, uh, ran out of momentum, because across North Africa, the, the, the peoples are fairly homogenous uh, with regard to religion. They're, they're all overwhelmingly uh, Sunni countries. That there is relatively little uh, religious uh, friction because the, 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 the demographics. Whereas in uh, the call them the, the Mashrek, the, the eastern part of the, the Arab world, uh, religion is ab absolutely crucial. Um, yeah, Syria is a mosaic uh, of communities, and um, although it's predominantly Sunni, that there are huge numbers, uh, 
about 40% of the population are, are not uh, Sunni. So immediately the Arabs bring hits a country like Syria, uh, it, 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 it's like a, a, a tide hitting a breakwater. And that, that breakwater is secularism and religion. And people uh, simply, uh, they, they just don't understand the, or want to understand the complexities of Syria, uh, how you, it would be extremely, extremely difficult to have full democracy when people vote um, purely on the basis of, of religion and when they're encouraged by the, the dominant religion to, to just be, be loyal to that, that community. Um, applying the Westminster model to a country like, like Syria is just a, a recipe, well, to um, open the gates to the most uh, bigoted, extreme uh, religious fanatics. And, uh, any, any war becomes, as this one did, a war for Sunni supremacy. That, that is not how it would be seen or described by the Syrian government, by the way, which is uh, correctly um, keen to stress that um, its own army, for example, is more than 50% Sunni, and more than half the government are Sunni. Nevertheless, on the other side, on the side of the the so-called rebels, the armed groups, they are 99.99% uh, Sunni. They have no doubts about whether this is a war for, for religion. Uh, whatever uh, men in suits they, uh, they put in front of uh, cameras or try to, to pretend that it's otherwise, uh, what you have in Syria is basically a bunch of Islamist warlords uh, fighting uh, a secular uh, government. And um, how, how much of that do you think in terms of the uh, the rebels? I don't want to get too much into the, the details of what makes up the, the Syrian opposition, that mosaic, but suffice to say, uh, the armed militant factions which were very very heavily supported by turkey from the from the from very early on i mean turkey allowed encampments just over the border large uh, camps of militants getting ready preparing incursions from uh, it, i would say as early as the spring of 2011 that early that that effort began to build up but at the same time turkey's changing its uh, its face its shape uh, politically, it's going through a, a transition that's moving towards a, a, a more of a, a religious-dominated uh, government, away from the the uh, Mustafa Ataturk Kemal uh, Kemalist revolution, uh, towards the Sun. You, you might call it the Sunnification, if you will, of the new Turkey. Um, you know, do you think do you think that was one of the main motivations of of uh, the Erdogan government to give full backing to this? destabilization effort in Syria, possibly to transform the, the face of Syria uh, as well? I, I, yes, indeed. I think it's uh, been um, partly, the, as you described it, Patrick, the Sunnification of, uh, of, of Turkey and, and Turkish policy, but also uh, Ottomanization, a return to the past. Uh, there are many uh, echoes of the, the, the Ottoman Empire reverberating around uh, northern Syria uh, uh, right now. And uh, it, 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 it appears that Erdogan is trying to channel uh, the, the days of the Ottoman uh, Pashas when the Turkish writ ran uh, all across North Africa and, and, and across the the Gulf. Uh, Turkey is active in, in North Africa. Uh, it has troops in, uh, in Libya. It's uh, active in uh, Qatar, in, in the Gulf, and sent uh, a garrison to uh, help protect the Qataris against the Saudi neighbors. Um, I mean, this has been, Turkey is one of the big gainers from the Arab Spring in the last 10 years. Uh, Turkey has Kind of picked up some of the, the pieces uh, after the Arab Spring and, and uh, Western uh, regime changing efforts created wreckage. Um, Turkey uh, opportunistically uh, stepped in. Um, and uh, what we're seeing in northern Syria is effectively a, a return to the, the days of, of the Ottoman 
empire with, with the Turkish currency, now uh, the currency of choice in much of northern uh, Syria. Uh, and um, it, 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 it is just so reminiscent of the, 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 the days of the, the Ottoman Empire. But of course, it's the other mainly Western powers which have also moved in to the, the, the wreckage and uh, assumed a more dominant and interfering role. Um, we, we see this particularly in Syria, of course, where the US even has what I would call occupation forces. I don't see how they can be described otherwise. They, they're over, their troops numbered in the thousands uh, in northern uh, Syria without any bio, bio leave um, from the Syrian uh, government. Um, and uh, I would say that the, the major gainers from the Arab Spring have been the Western powers. Uh, when you look back 10 years ago, um, countries like uh, uh, Libya, uh, were uh, grit uh, in the machinery of Western uh, domination. Um, Syria uh, was uh, a, a piece of uh, grit, but, but is now threatened and is uh, well on the way to being destabilized. Um, many of those uh, Arab countries uh, affected by the, the Arab Spring would not toe the line on the issue of Palestine and Israel, whereas today, we are seeing, um, maybe we can come on to this in more detail, but we're seeing it, uh, the, even countries like uh, Morocco um, ready to establish relations with uh, Israel and countries like the Emirates and Bahrain have already jumped into bed uh, with uh, Israel. And this is something that the Western powers have been uh, uh, cudgeling the, the, the Arab countries to do for many years, and here we are, it's happening. Uh, what's not to like if, if you're one of the Western powers? Whereas the Arab people, as is shown in recent opinion polls, are very far from happy by this turn of events uh, over Palestine. So th th that brings us to the, the an important part of the conversation. You know, the, the, under the Trump administration, this late effort, the Abraham Accords, a, a Jared Kushner-led uh, envoy effort to bring the Gulf states kind of uh, into the same fold with Israel, uh, a singular vision of the future of the region, having you know served in that region, especially in the Gulf states. What what's your um, what are your thoughts on that? The relationship of like take Bahrain for instance. Have they always been sympathetic to to Israel quietly? The, the I'm talking about the royal family, obviously. Um, you know the the ruling elite there. Does it make a big difference to them one way or the other, or is this is this a real change in, in strategic thinking uh, by the Gulf states? Um, well, the, the first uh, point I'd make is that in strategic terms, it doesn't matter much anyway. None of the Gulf states ever uh, represented the most minimal strategic threat to Israel. At most they would give uh, lip service to the Palestinian cause. Uh, I, I used to be a fundraiser for the UN uh, agency trying to raise money for Palestinian refugees. And uh, it was quite an uphill struggle. Um, they didn't even want to pay serious money, uh, conscience uh, money. Um, the, the, the leader, I'm talking about the leaderships of the, the autocratic, often feudal leaderships of the, the Gulf uh, countries. They were so self-centered, they really didn't care less about these uppity Palestinians who, who did practice a degree of democracy uh, and who used that democracy to vote in, uh, hey, uh, an Islamist Hamas uh, government, um, which of course was anathema to the West, and quickly uh, squashed so that Hamas is left just with the, the rump of, uh, of Gaza. Um, no, the Western, the, the, um, the Gulf countries have, have never uh, 
had any military role whatever in in resistance to Israel, only ever gave um, uh, lip service to the Palestinian cause. Uh, for many years, had not even uh, provided much diplomatic support. So they're jumping into bed with Israel now. Is it, really not neither here nor there in uh, in strategic uh, terms. It's salutary, perhaps, for the Palestinians to realize that they should stop looking for salvation to the Gulf uh, or to Washington, which have both demonstrated uh, that the Palestinians are on their own. And had this been clear back in the days uh, of, um, the, uh, of the, the mid-90s, when the Palestinians were selling their birthright in false negotiations, so-called the, the peace process, when the Palestinians were giving away for virtually nothing their birthright, uh, recognition of Israel, agreement to participate in uh, as quislings in administration of the Palestinian territories, when they were, had they known that a few years down the track, they would be abandoned by the West and by the Gulf countries. They would not have made those concessions and they would have been in a much stronger position today. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point. You know, the, the Palestine, uh, a, a potentially a good candidate, uh, or Israel and Palestine, for a, a, a really uh, successful pluralistic democracy in the future, perhaps in the region, but totally ignored totally glossed over during this uh, this decade uh, of Arab Spring and post-Arab Spring. Um, and, and do you think the what Israel has been able to uh, accomplish through the Trump administration in the last few years, the moving of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, the annexation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jordan Valley, do, do you think it, it, on one hand it's the any chances of them achieving any wins uh the palestinian people is is slipping away or is this potentially leading to a potentially a bigger conflict uh in the in the medium to short term well i think a, a historian uh, looking at it would say that this this that where we are now the result was, was nailed on from the day that the palestinians signed those peace accords in, I think it was 1994, by giving up uh, their position of principle on recognition of uh, Israel, they were giving away their, their most powerful negotiating card, um, and then by acquiescing, effectively acquiescing in continuing occupation until the day, uh, which was never going to come, that Israel would agree to withdraw. Um, and there, there was an inexorability, inexorability about it that, um, that they would end up with virtually nothing. That Israel, Israel the status quo power, would nibble away uh, with uh, acquiescence or, or even uh, encouragement by people like the, the Trump administration and the Palestinians would be left with, at best, a few reservations. Um, in fact, some did predict back in the mid-90s, unfortunately, that this was going to happen. Unfortunately, I wasn't one of those clear-sighted individuals, um, but any historian would be bound to come to that conclusion today, the, 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 the Palestinians sold their, their soul uh, for a packet of, of promises and um, the, the, the process is now well on the way to being uh, irreversible. Now to just to switch, uh, switch gears a little bit, uh, back to the U.S. Uh, obviously we're coming into potentially uh, a new uh, administration uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, in the United States, the Biden administration coming in. There's a lot of talk about changes in, in foreign policy, what to expect from the new administration. And so I'm going to point to uh, an article uh, that you have uh, uh, penned recently 
uh, at 21st Century Wire, and the headline is, A Cynical U.S. Policy on Syria Revealed, Block the Russians and the Iranians, Destroy the Economy, and to Hell with the People. Quite a provocative uh, headline, Peter, but actually quite accurate. Now, I'm going to pull a quote uh, from this uh, as well, and this is uh, from the article here. As long as the U.S. puts styming its adversaries ahead of any genuine concern for the suffering and the prospects of the Syrian people, including the millions of refugees that con- condemned by this policy to infinite exile, no end is in sight. And you continue, it's worth bearing in mind that James Jeffrey worked with Obama long before he worked with Trump. Anybody who expects the Biden administration to follow a different path on Syria must be seriously deluded unless by different is meant uh, an even more reckless activist, interventionist policy that goes beyond stabilizing. And then the final nail on this one, and there is no Trump there now to apply the brakes. Now, Peter, (laughs) some people might look at that as a uh, controversial statement. You're, You're effectively separating uh, Donald Trump, I know it's a complicated uh, distinction to make for some people, uh, but it, was Donald Trump a, a, a mitigating force uh, in the region towards U.S. hegemony? I mean, was he really honest and genuine about his his initial campaign pledges to withdraw the U.S. from these unwinnable forever wars in the Middle East? Uh, a lot of people on the left would say, no, no, it's all the same. Imperial. Do you think there is a genuine difference in foreign policy uh, overall between the Trump administration and Obama-Biden? Uh, I believe that uh, uh, candidate uh, Trump uh, was onto something and knew he was onto something with the population of the state uh, when he promised to, to withdraw America from the Middle East. Um, and he, he made serious efforts uh, on at least two occasions to withdraw um, thousands of U.S. forces uh, from northern Syria. And on each uh, occasion, he was thwarted, not just by the the government machine, by by the deep state, uh, if if you like, but also by liberal uh, opinion. (laughs) This is the irony uh, of it. uh, We touched on this uh, earlier, but... uh, uh, centers of opinion that uh, would consider themselves uh, liberal uh, ended up being the champions of um, U.S. imperialism, demanding that U.S. forces continue to occupy part of a a foreign country that has has never uh, remotely represented any threat to the United States. Um, uh, And and Trump, (laughs) of whom I was never a great fan, but you, you have to recognize that he, he made serious efforts to um, escape, not, sorry, made serious efforts to withdraw completely uh, U.S. Uh, forces, uh, did uh, force a partial withdrawal of some hundreds, um, uh, and in Iraq uh, also, uh, and, and uh, Afghanistan, of course, Trump did um, campaign for and did achieve a certain amount of uh, troop reduction. Uh, now, in other areas, he, he was uh, reckless. Um, I'm not sure whether with uh, Iran, uh, he was uh, on balance a good uh, influence, Pro- probably not. Um, but uh, with regards to uh, the, the, the Arab uh, world, um, Iraq and, and Syria, um, I think uh, uh, we're going to miss uh, we're going to miss uh, Trump, or at least the, the locals uh, will. And and so, do you think uh, going forward is is that going to be the U.S. role in the Middle East right now? I mean, it's a very different region than it was even in 2016. If you look at how Turkey uh, has progressed, how Iran especially has really shown that it can. Uh, you know, assert its interests. Uh, only 12 months ago, it did that in dramatic fashion by hitting two U.S. Uh, bases, I believe, uh, with missile strikes, very accurate and firm missile strikes as well. And that caused the U.S., I think, to think twice about its strategic position in the region. 
But it, so what, what is the U.S. left with in Syria, for instance, just to continue to, you know, the, the Brett McGurk, James Jeffrey spoiler uh, operation to divide the country and keep it economically hamstrung, as you said in your article, uh, you know, just that spoiler role. Is, is that all that's left? Or are they now playing a kind of a supporting role? Is Israel really uh, master, is, is an Israeli master plan that the U.S. is assisting now? Uh, which, which, who do you think is, is playing the dominant role? Um, well, I, I think we, the, the Israeli plan um, is what we're seeing with our own eyes. Um, uh, it's in Israel's interest to keep Syria on the boil for the conflict never to be resolved. And uh, since the conflict has been going on now for, um, well, for 10, 10 years, uh, you might say it's a fairly successful policy. Um, Israel is always worried about Syria because it was the one Arab country that would never bend the knee and which conceivably, conceivably, by, by some stretch of the imagination, could possibly represent a military threat to, to Israel and that could never be tolerated. So um, Israel, almost from the start, has just tried to keep the pot boiling and, and that is how US policy has ended up. This is what Ambassador Jeffrey, uh, who until very recently was uh, the, uh, the Trump administration point man on Syria, he, he said very openly, if, if we can't win our objective, uh, oh, and, and we can't at the moment, uh, so hoping for better days, we just want to keep, keep the pot boiling, um, keep making things difficult for uh, the Assad government, uh, largely through uh, economic warfare, um, make things difficult for the, the Russians, keep them penned uh, down in, in uh, what uh, hopefully will become a, a quagmire for, for Russia. Um, and uh, he was very self-congratulatory um, because in, in a sense, the policy has been successful. The US has managed to prevent a solution, whether that is uh, honorable whether it's actually in U.S. interests um, can be discussed. Uh, but that is clearly the policy, and that will almost certainly be the policy that the Biden administration will continue to follow. Now, every incoming new government or administration in the Western world feels, uh, feels it incumbent on itself to come up with a new policy for uh, hot-button uh, areas. So. The Biden administration is bound to come up with um, some uh, policy labeled as new, but which will look uh, pretty indistinguishable from the, the Trump uh, era policy. Uh, I expect it to uh, carry on with the, um, the attempted partition of Syria via those U.S. forces in the, in the Northeast, uh, continue with the uh, truly awful economic war, which is creating bread queues, gasoline queues in, in Syria, uh, quite how this helps the security of the American people, uh, nobody bothers to, to ask, but that is the, the result. It's immiserating the Syrian people, uh, just as the uh, Iraqi sanctions uh, immiserated the Iraqi people and didn't do uh, the least good in terms of dislodging Saddam Hussein. Um, it, it, we're seeing the, the same, it's Groundhog Day with sanctions. Uh, US sanctions on Syria are now at least as bad as they ever were uh, on uh, Saddam's Iraq. So I'm very uh, pessimistic about prospects for any change on, on the Biden. Um, whether the rest the other players will stand still, however, and just let this happen, is another question. And here we come perhaps to Russia and Iran. That's one of the things that, that struck me personally in, in recent years. I've been to Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, all of those countries stretching from the, uh, the Mediterranean uh, right to 
past the Persian Gulf, you know, touching Central Asia, uh, as, as Iran does, it straddles Asia. Uh, and one of the things that struck me is that we're always talking about these as individual parts, individual countries, individual situations. When we talk about Europe, we're talking about the common market. We're talking about the union. We're talking about these, you know, economic trading regions, uh, but not in the Middle East. And uh, it, it's it's permanently balkanized. It's permanently subdivided either by uh, by religion, as, as the West likes to frame it. I, I personally don't see that as the, as the governing um, impetus in the region. I think there's also more an economic uh, impetus uh, by those people in strong economic positions to maintain those positions as well. But what what would the region look like? You've been in the region. You're very familiar your whole life with the region. What would it look like with a common trading area between Lebanon and Iran, for instance, if that was a, 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 a common market mm-hmm. <laughs> with freedom of movement and, you know, very not not much threat in terms of you know, borders being shut because of terror, ISIS activity, things like that, sanctions, things like that. What what would it look like? Uh, well, this has been a uh, an Arab dream uh, for many uh, many uh, years. Uh, sort of Arab uh, com- common market or equivalent of the, the European uh, Union, um, but it, it never looks less likely to come about than than today. <laughs> The, the, there was a time um, in the 60s and 70s when serious moves were made to create a, an Arab common market, but these founded for for many uh, reasons, including e- economic, just the, the structure of the economies. Uh, these are not, by and large, developed uh, economies. Uh, they they uh, they're competing. Um, the ability to develop um, a common market similar to that of Europe, uh, it, it would be far from straightforward, if, even if there were no politics uh, involved. But what we're, we're seeing is, is um, a, a fracturing, uh, an ever greater fracturing of the, uh, the Arabs. Um, at the time, the Arabs let us remember, uh, did wield uh, great economic power in 1973. This was the, the high watermark uh, for Arab unity uh, in, in this uh, century, uh, when uh, it's easy to forget, but I was a, a young diplomat at the time, and I can vouch for the fact that Western countries were running scared of the Arab uh, oil embargo, and and we we were uh, it was us who were bending the knee, uh, who were uh, uh, rushing to find ways to appease the uh, the Arabs. How long ago that seems now? Um, there is absolutely no way the, the Arab world could wield anything like that um, that unity of purpose. Uh, the, the ideology has changed. They don't support the Palestinian cause, uh, or even themselves, as they did all those years ago. And uh, this has been, it, uh, even in a, a region like the Gulf, which is uh, rich and could be uh, united, um, their the, the petty rivalries always get in in the way. So you get a country like a uh, micro power like. Qatar uh, is always going to be a piece of grit in uh, efforts uh, towards uh, Gulf unity. The, the Gulf does have uh, uh, what used to be a fairly strong um, um, common organization, the, the GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, which was built uh, as a, on the model of the, um, the European Commission. Um, but it, this has become uh, toothless. Uh, as well, um, uh, having founded on, on the rocks of the Saudi Qatari uh, eternal uh, rivalry. So, so we go back to during that time, during the 70s, and uh, Egypt and, and Nasser, uh, really strong, really projecting a lot of influence, not just uh, political, but you know, cultural. You're talking about pan Arabism uh, as, a, as a movement, as a regional. Uh, movement 
And, you know, that, that was a very different region. Uh, you, the U.S.'s relationship with Israel wasn't anything as nearly in tight and, and, and institutionalized as it is politically now uh, in the 21st century. But now we're in 2020. Egypt is no longer there as that potential leader uh, driving, uh, you know, a progress or driving politics in the region, driving pan-Arabism. Now it, the, the, the strongest player really is on the fringe of the Middle East uh, in terms of influence, potential economic power, uh, in terms of potential democracy. I know people don't consider Iran as a democratic nation in the West, but actually it is quite pluralistic in many ways and very uh, uh, a very active uh, democratic society uh, in terms of discourse, debate, and things like that that we're not aware of in the West. I, is, has Iran supplanted Egypt as that beacon uh, for the region. I know it's not an Arab country as such, um, but you know, in terms of that hierarchy, I mean, what's going to drive things in the in the future? Turkey is certainly making a play uh, to fill that role, even even ahead of Saudi Arabia as a spiritual leader uh, in the region. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, um, if, if Iran. I, we, I'm sorry, but we keep coming back to the issue, issue of re religion, whether we, we like it or, or not. Um, Iran uh, wields a great deal of influence in, in, in the region, but it can never get over the fact that it's a Shia, predominantly Shia country. Therefore, its uh, alliances are almost exclusively with countries like uh, Syria, which have uh, important Shia minorities uh, or minorities of, of sects like Alawites, which are closer to Shiism than Sunnism, um, or Iran can wield influence in a country like uh, Bahrain, uh, where the, the population are Shia and the rulers are Sunni, uh, or, or Iran can have influence uh, in, in Iraq, uh, a country which uh, has, I think, uh, a majority Shia uh, population, and to some extent, uh, Yemen uh, also. But Iran, um, it's almost un unthinkable that Iran could have great influence in, in other predominantly Sunni countries, purely on the basis of, uh, of religion. Um, Egypt uh, we used to wield great influence because of ideology uh, uh, and that ideology was, um, was was socialism tinged with Arab nationalism uh, now both those forces have uh, weakened uh, immensely um, Syria is a, is a holdout uh, but a very weakened uh, holdout of that ideology um, and now it's it's basically a, a free-for-all uh, there, there are no uh, ideologies any, anymore among the Arabs. Arab nationalism has uh, uh, withered on, on the vine. Um, support, support for Palestine uh, has been part of, of, of the weakening of support for Palestine has gone, gone the same way. Socialism has gone the same way. Communism has gone the same way. All that's left are pockets of Islamism to fill the, the vacuum, um, and e even Islamism it appears to be mostly on, on the wane. And uh, some breaking news, actually, uh, this just came on our feed here, I just grabbed this. Uh, Yemen airport bombing attack occurred as a new government, backed by, I believe, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, arrives uh, by plane in Aden in southern Yemen, and uh, that this is a this is a situation, obviously, you, you're familiar, Britain has an incredible history uh, right back from the imperial days with, with the country of Yemen. Uh, but this is something that is never framed uh, very clearly or correctly in the Western media. That essentially, you're looking at a partition forming in this country, really, a northern and a southern Yemen. This is completely obfuscated right now. Uh, even how this, this came out on the wires uh, we had to edit it slightly to show that, um, you know, this isn't uh, the government of Yemen, although they're talking about it like this. Um, 
is this situation going to uh, accelerate uh, the, the 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 splitting the, the the partitioning of Yemen under this new U.S. administration? Because uh, it's been a very it's it's got a lot of bad press this this effort U.S. and British backed um, Saudi effort really um, in, in Yemen, which started in the Mar- March of 2015 is when the uh, the first bombing runs happened. Um, how, how is this situation? It's a very important geostrategic location, Gulf of Aden, Horn of Africa. If you look at what's happening in the Sahel region, that could potentially come unglued in the next couple of years. A country like Sudan and Djibouti, and these are all really key, the, the, this, the busiest shipping th- thoroughfare in the world, actually, running into the Red Sea. Uh, how are you looking at this situation You know, from a broader perspective? Um, well, um, Britain and I think the U.S. never saw an Arab country they didn't think would be better off divided and partitioned. Uh, and in fact, that's what the British did uh, to uh, Yemen. Uh, uh, they divided North Yemen from South, South Yemen. Um, and to some extent, the, the current situation is just a, a heritage uh, situation after that, that earlier uh, division. Um, we see uh, Libya uh, with the, uh, the, the, the dictator uh, Gaddafi uh, removed, that piece of grit, the country literally falling to, to pieces. Uh, Western powers quite comfortable with that situation. Uh, Syria um, with the US uh, very proactively working to partition Syria to keep that northern um, sliver uh, of territory um, where where most of the oil is, most of the grain is. They want that to be uh, kept separate from the rest of of Syria. So um, the Western powers can live very comfortably, uh, more than comfortably, with partition uh, which weakens uh, Arab unity, weakens those uh, countries so that they can never challenge uh, Western or, or Israeli interests. Um, Yemen is very uh, complex. Um, I mean, I don't think got long enough to <laughs> go into the, the full, um, to do justice to the, the Yemeni uh, situation. But I, I would just like to draw attention to what, what happened, um, uh, well, now about uh, 18 months ago when attacks were launched by drone, probably from, from Yemeni territory at Saudi uh, targets. Uh, for me, this was a, 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 a real turning point in the, the history of the, the Middle East. This was the moment um, when American domination was challenged and challenged successfully, when it, 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 it seems a, an, an eon ago now, but the, 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 the tanker war of 2019, when the US tried to bottle up uh, Iranian uh, oil tankers in the Gulf and prevent Iran exporting any, any at all, of its oil, um, and Iran um, showed its claws, partly by launching attacks by drone from Yemeni territory, uh, which took out uh, Abqaiq, the, the major Saudi oil-producing center. This was uh, Iran showing that the, the whole strategic equation the whole, the whole of modern warfare in, in the Middle East had to be looked at again, that the U.S. was not as dominant as it had assumed. And, uh, you know, we just got a couple of minutes left uh, before we finish. Um, and I just want to get your your final thoughts on, uh, the, you know, what, what do you think uh, in the next couple of years, uh, for the first years of the new U.S. administration, um, you know, do, do, do you think there's a lot of people are worried right now that uh, this nation building project, specifically in Syria, it's not the only one, but specifically in Syria, that somehow this is considered unfinished business 
uh, by the Obama administration had plowed so much money and so much intelligence and, and effort into pro building proxy armies, uh, like you said, dividing Syria uh, into uh, components that are uh, to that are not able to come together politically or economically, uh, weakening it. Um, do, do you think there is a chance of the uh, rebuilding an opposition or a reemergence of ISIS? Is this or is has the fa have the facts on the ground just changed so dramatically since Russia came in to the conflict and has have really formalized their position? Uh, in there and and, and re-strengthened and ballasted Damascus, as it were. Um, despite everything that's going on the periphery, that things have changed so much, do you still think there's a lot of people are worried that there's a chance that that might reignite or they might try that effort again, um, a revamped opposition proxy war again? What are your final thoughts on, on this, Peter? Um. Well, it's, it's funny in a way, we've, we've got through um, nearly 45 minutes without mentioning ISIS, um, which has been a, a huge uh, force uh, of evil um, for se several uh, years, uh, and which has by no means uh, gone away in, in Syria. Uh, just, just now, it's breaking news, um, fresh uh, Russian attacks on ISIS uh, positions in uh, uh, north central uh, Syria. And um, here we are, the West. We don't care a fig about ISIS coming back strongly in Syria as long as it weakens the Assad government and, and is a nuisance to Russia and Iran. And yet, only a couple of years ago, uh, it seemed that we'd stop the world to do anything to prevent this alleged existential threat, uh, which was uh, ISIS. Um, I'm afraid we're going to hear more about uh, an ISIS comeback in 2021, uh, largely because we, the West, are preventing the, Syrians, the Syrian uh, army uh, from tackling uh, ISIS. The, the Syrian army have penned down with other operations in, in northern uh, Syria and trying to get back control over Syrian uh, territory from Turkey uh, and from the, the US. Uh, they're, they're, they're being spread too thinly to cope uh, very effectively uh, with a resurgent uh, ISIS. Well, there's a, that's that's a major segue, uh, obviously, and um, I, I'm I tend to agree with you, uh, just as they thought Al Qaeda had been in the rearview mirror that made a uh, a big comeback. I, I don't think ISIS is uh, disappearing uh, from the scene uh, by any means. So it's uh, definitely there's going to be a lot uh, a lot to look at in the, in the next year or two. Uh, but uh, Peter Peter Ford, we want to thank you. Uh, for joining us uh, for this edition of 21 Wire Live. And we really appreciate your great efforts as well, uh, your writings as well. We've uh, published some of them at 21stCenturyWire.com. And we always uh, really look forward to your insights and your particular view and unique take uh, on what's going on in this, this important part of the region. There's a lot of other topics I'd like to talk to you about <laughs> maybe for the future. One of them, of course, is, is the lockdown issue. Uh, in in the UK, um, that's a different conversation I would like to have with you, and I'm sure you wouldn't uh, mind weighing in on that uh, as well. But um, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you, uh, Patrick, uh, and thank you for giving me uh, a platform which is largely denied uh, to me by the mainstream. No surprise there. Oh, actually, I, I do have this. Uh, let me show you an image I'm going to throw up on screen and I think some people might get a kick out of here. This is you with Tucker Carlson in April of uh, 2018, I believe. Uh, and this has been pulled down from YouTube so many times, uh, this this particular segment here. And uh, I think at the time you, uh, you referred to that, uh, Peter, as your uh, drive-by uh, bombing run in U.S. US media. <laughs> but uh, that was a great segment, by the way, and, and it was very hot when you, when you went on the air uh, for that segment. But I think you made a big impact as well in the, in the conversation. 
Got to. Tucker was listening, unlike the, the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, well, hopefully we won't have to do that again. But uh, in the event that we do, it's good to know that there are some good mainstream journalists that are open-minded enough uh, to hear what uh, people like you have to say on these issues. But uh, take care, Peter. Uh, all the best. And uh, we'll hopefully be in touch. Thank you very much. Bye, Patrick. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that's it for this edition. This is episode two of 21 Wire Live. Uh, you can also follow us uh, uh, on Sunday. Uh, we've got a live radio broadcast, the Sunday Wire. I know some of you are watching this or are already listeners uh, of the Sunday Wire, and we do appreciate your listenership. This is a new format. This is a new show. We'll aim to go out live uh, every Wednesday uh, around the same time. It's usually going to be a GMT late afternoon uh, and very similar to the uh, time frame for the Sunday Wire radio show, which goes out live on alternatecurrentradio.com uh, every Sunday. So we look forward to listening there and seeing what you have to say in the chat box. We've got some new features that we've implemented on our website, uh, also in the Sunday Wire, and that's because of you, our listeners, who've come in to support us during our winter fundraising drive. We've been able to launch projects like this and other sort of technical improvements and things for our community uh, at 21stCenturyWire.com. So we really appreciate your support. And uh, if you want to support us and help what we're doing, uh, please go to 21stCenturyWire.com and you'll see links for donations or support us during this important winter fundraising drive. But uh, that's it for this week's edition, episode two of 21 Wire Live. Uh, again, I really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, we'll be doing the same live stream this time next week. And we have a very special guest lined up again uh, next Wednesday as well. So we're really looking forward to that. And we hope that you are too. So until then, uh, take care. And uh, we'll see you uh, on the other side. All the best. <laughs>